0: Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me, as always, is the friend who is truly sanctuary in the flesh, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing great, Andy. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm swell. Uh, we have a guest star.
1: We do have a guest star. I'm so excited. Uh, Bryn Tanner is an up-and-coming playwright based out of Minneapolis. He is also a recent graduate of Spalding's MFA program. And he is the founder of Albino Squirrel Productions, which just premiered its most recent show, Turnabout Samurai, to rave reviews. Uh, And Bryn, also, we wanted to have you here because he's an expert on today's movie. Uh, Bryn, welcome to Once Upon a Disney. Bonjour. (laughs) <laughs> Bonjour. <laughs> although, although now I'm trying, starting to think of a song from a different Disney movie.
2: Right. Uh, same, same directors, though. Yes.
1: Same directors. Same directors and some crossover, Correct. which we may we may get to. So today's movie ending is yeah. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Ooh, <laughs> I think. Yes. Which. which which full disclosure I've seen a few times. Bryn I believe has seen a lot, and and Andy has seen for the very first time for this recording. Uh, Andy, did you find anything out about this
0: movie? I did. I have some key facts to share. Um, so, The Hunchback of Notre Dame is based on Victor Hugo's nineteen or sorry, eighteen thirty one Gothic novel. Uh, it's a staple of French literature. It's a work that's often adapted for TV, stage, musical theater, ballet, radio broadcast, comic books, and, of course, screen. Uh, by my count, there are 15 movies that have been made using the source material. So, wow. There's that. Uh, the novel is set at the Notre Dame de Paris, uh, Our Lady of Paris, uh, which is a cathedral in uh, on the Seine River. Uh, Hugo's novel was partially an attempt to build a case for the restoration and preservation of medieval architecture in France. So after that book was published, uh, a big restoration project happens. Um, That, I mean, just to let you all know, I mean, probably everybody remembers in like 2019, I think, while that another restoration project was happening, uh, the roof of Notre Dame caught fire. And so it's going to be restored and should be completed in 2024 in time for the Summer Olympic Games.
1: Do you remember in 2019 when when we were all upset about that? Because that was (laughs) that was a sign. uh, And like and if you told me that was 20, 30 years ago, I'd be like, yep, that's that's right. Total lifetime ago, right? My
2: brother-in-law was right down the street from that when that happened. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, we were curious if you had anything to do with it. But no.
0: (laughs) OK, well, let's Fair not let's not incriminate him on this podcast. We're going to um, get to the
1: bottom of this in our true crime po- uh,
0: podcast later. <laughs> that's Ooh. right. That's right. Well, it's hard to overstate, I think, how much Notre Dame means to France. And um, that said, there was a fear that the film, this film would not be well received in France because of a perceived disnification of foundational French culture, But when the film opened in late 1996, there were 3 million movie tickets that were sold in France in just three weeks. Uh, Victor Hugo's former home hosted an exhibition based on the movie and, of course, Hugo's book. And the movie grossed $300 on an $80 million budget.
1: Wow. Not bad. I knew it was a success, but that's a big success.
0: Yeah, Uh, Gaetan Britzy, one of the sequence directors and animators for the film, had a statement that I thought was really important and and might spur our discussion today. He said, a hunchback is poetic because of its dark romanticism. This movie is very important in making people understand that hate has no place in our society between a culture or people or a country. That's the message of the movie and of Victor Hugo himself. Wow. I thought that was pretty good uh, for fans of Disney Anna and Disney culture, Disneyland and Disneyland Paris both used to have a little daytime float parade modeled after the Festival of Fools called the Hunchback of Notre Dame. I'm going to do that the whole time. The yeah, Hunchback the of problem. Notre Dame Topsy Turvy Cavalcade. Which is kind of fun. And Mm -hmm. in January of 2019, Disney announced they were planning a live action remake of The Hunchback of Notre Dame with Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz returning to do the music. uh, Tony winning playwright uh, David Henry Huang to craft the screenplay and Josh Gad, David Hoberman, Todd Lieberman and Don Hahn set to produce. Of course, 2019 was a lifetime ago, as we mentioned. And so who even knows what the uh, current plans are of this August 2022 taping? Yeah, I, I mean,
1: these things are always in flux, but, but uh, ha- having people attached is a big deal. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So a number of the scenes, uh, particularly those with Esmeralda dancing and Esmeralda in the church with the Statue of Mary, I think are borrowed directly from the 1939 version of this film starring Charles Lawton and Maureen mm-hmm. O'Hara. Um, I think it's just, I mean, you can put the scenes beside each other. They're scene by scene there. And there are a lot of Easter egg cameos in this film too, from Disney stars. Um, we have the rat from lady and the tramp. who was also in Pocahontas, but that rat shows up now and again, Belle, okay. Pumbaa, and the magic carpet are all seen and out there. <laughs> and and Lon from Pocahontas shows up during Topsy Turvy. So there you oh, go. Wow. I wow.
2: didn't know about Lon or the rat. This is news to me. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. On my 300th viewing, I'll have to keep an eye out for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll have to do one more at least. Yes. Agreed. All right, that folks. Looks- yeah. And now I'm going to go to my least favorite segment <laughs> uh, that we do for this podcast called Racist Roundup. Uh, And in Racist Roundup, we try to acknowledge things, although we're not solving world problems here. But we do want to acknowledge um, that in this movie, the word gypsy is used often and the word gypsy is a slur. Uh, It is something that has gotten into the common parlance. And I think people use it without even recognizing uh, that there's a negative stigma to it. But um, if you've ever said if you've ever said something I've had to de- delete from my own lexicon. Oh, what a gyp. I got ripped off. What a gyp. That's a racist slur. Uh, that's that's something uh, to, to work out of your vocabulary uh, as soon as possible. But this movie uses the word gypsy often. And what makes it complicated is I think when we're talking about characters who are themselves racist, uh, like Frollo, Frollo calling calling them gypsies completely makes sense for his character. Uh, but but the the people themselves, Esmeralda herself refers to herself as a gypsy, and that would, is not something that she would have done. Uh, and so we're left in this tricky way. We have to talk about this movie that uses this word a lot and hopefully it doesn't slip out, but it may. And if it does, we apologize for it. I don't want to, however, call them the Romani people, the Romani people, because, um, I don't know that, you know, the real life analogs t- want to claim, uh, Esmeralda Clapon and, and the rest as, as, members of their culture. So I'm going to say that we use the word caravan to describe these people who are treated as outsiders in France, uh, avoiding the slur and avoiding uh, claiming membership for a group that may not want to claim them. Uh, And that's how we're going to thread this needle. And listeners, if there was a better way for us to handle it, let us know so that we know for the future we are all works in progress. uh, But I hope that our intent of, of honoring the ugliness behind this word uh, is is uh, we're, we're, we're doing our best. And if we can do better, we'll do better. Absolutely.
2: I noticed okay. even in the Disney Plus summary of this movie, right from the get go, it still uses the word gypsy.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's something we're slow to acknowledge uh, how ugly it is.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think I, a lot I, of people even now yeah. treat it as kind of like a neutral term, but... And and
1: just so and just so you know, Disney doesn't shoulder the burden for this. The original novel uses the G word throughout as well. Okay, mm. with that unpleasantness behind us, let us get into the monish tana. Why does this movie start where it starts? Um, and this is once again, as often of these movies do, we begin with some narration. And it isn't quite clear who our narrator is. Uh, it's, it's Clapon. We, we, we will know who he is a little bit later on in the movie. But as opposed to Robin Hood, which we did very recently, where Robin mm-hmm. Hood took a, took a step to introduce himself and to sort of position himself in this movie. We're not really quite clear where Clapon is positioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what his perspective of it is, but he introduces this movie through song, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering what you guys think of the choice to begin the movie in this particular way. Why do you th- why do you think we start this way?
0: I mean, we have this is a traditional Disney prologue kind of beginning, right? Yes. Um, even though we don't necessarily know who Clopin is um aladdin sort of starts this way too um i, I would say i mean, we get a lot of exposition about quasimodo history that he himself does not have uh, right. and copan tells the story like a street puppeteer to children um so i mean on the one hand it's kind of this nod like oh this is a story for kids <laughs> I'm not sure it is a story but for is kids. is it? Yes. Exactly. And and there's this really interesting choice that's made in this prologue um, to be very explicit about the theme, which, uh, and the theme, who, I mean, it's in the song, uh, who is the monster and who is the man, right? right. And um, yeah, so we kind of know, we kind of know what we, we're, we kind of know what this movie is all about from the, from the Manishana, I think. We're yes, gonna answer I- that question. Well, so I'll throw out here that one of the things
1: that I do appreciate about this opening is it's giving us exposition and it's giving it to us through song,
0: which mm-hmm. is
1: mm-hmm. much better for me than the storybook. Let's read along with the story uh, or or the narrator going long ago in a place called Paris, <laughs> like uh, through song, through song is good. But Andy you're you just you just pointed something out that I had not considered, which is right from the get go. We have more information about Quasimodo's past than the Quasimodo does. That information is going to be a reveal for him later mm-hmm. in the movie. But it is not a reveal for us. And I hadn't really thought about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I can't help but wonder If maybe, if maybe we should be getting a false exposition, which is the story that Frollo has told Quasimodo about his birth, rather than the omniscient view of what actually happened. So uh, it's a dark way to open the movie, what I'm suggesting, and right. I, I don't know that this movie wants to go in a darker perspective. But if we went through this movie believing Frollo's version of events that Frollo saved the life of Quasimodo, and then we got the actual story later on, that mm-hmm. that's my brain's buzzing about that. What do you guys think?
2: I, I, I feel like. Uh, I, I just feel like the way it opens now. Within. Within. You know, the first 10 minutes or so of the movie, when Frollo appears in present time, he then tells Quasi that his mother left him abandoned at the doorstep and, you know, gives him that version of the story. And I feel like for this movie trying to be something of like a morality play, mm-hmm. I feel like it's more effective that we know from the beginning that he's a liar.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah. I, I I don't know if pulling the wool over the audience's eyes would have helped you know, their moral or their message necessarily, but it, it would be an interesting concept for sure. It's a
1: thought experiment at least. Right. Um, mm-hmm. What the movie would be like if that happened. I want to, I want to throw another thing out here uh, with this opening, which is Andy points out, you know, they ask that question, who is the monster and who is the man? As if that's the thing we're going to learn from this movie. And I want to pause we already know the answer 15 right. seconds in. And I don't feel the need to pull out my notebook and, and and make pro and con lists about which one of these guys is the monster and which one of these guys is the man. Um I I don't know what you think about that, but it's 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 not it's not they ask it like it's a question we're going to answer. I I think I think
0: we we already know. Right. Is that right? Is I mean, that There's no. I mean, yeah. And, and as we know with Disney films, there's no real moral ambiguity. I think that if you, if we were to tell it a different way, we weren't to be, uh, if we were to be a little less explicit um, we wouldn't have that moral certitude. And I think if we're going to make this movie a G rated movie for families, it's going to have to have that. I think.
2: Yeah. I feel like that's the challenge of adapting a story that revolves around Moral ambiguity and converting it into this product. Well,
1: and that's a great point. Uh, And we'll talk about in a little bit later what the original product was. Um, But but, you know, what we can certainly say is the original product. Most Disney movies have very clear uh, darkness and light, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. There's not a lot of gray in it. Uh, And this is a movie that has a bit more gradation. Uh, I think, in terms of you know
0: who's good and who's bad. The other thing that we see in this Amenasana is we actually um, there is a trope, a dead mother trope in Disney mm-hmm. filmography, but this time we actually get to see the mother die and be murdered, which is a lot to take in uh, in that in that first mm. in the prologue, I think. I think it's a lot. I think it's a lot for family. I I don't think this is a family film. I think it is a, it's a film that is, um, bending upwards. Yes. <laughs> but it's, it, I, it doesn't, it doesn't, I think this is a film for, you know, for maybe older teenagers or adults who like Disney, but I'm not sure that this really hits.
2: Yeah. I, the, I saw marks. this. I saw this in theaters at a very tender age. Um, And I believe I actually fell asleep during it. So that. (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, Very ironic.
1: Yes. Considering. Um, But I do want to I do want to throw out. I think what what they do to thread this needle, and I don't know that they thread it correctly, is they make it look like her death is kind of an accident. It is Mm -hmm. absolutely Frollo's fault that she dies. But they mm-hmm. make it so it w- isn't clear that it was Frollo's intent for her to die. He even like justifies it. He's like, I didn't kill her. I she ran and I pursued and that led to her death. But it's not on my hands. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're a kid in the audience. His justifications make it. Oh, well, then I guess it's OK. Um, it It's it still it still feels like a murder, whether or not they actually show it murderously or with murderous intent
0: well and he's willing to throw a baby down a well i mean there's a, there's a whole lot going on here for for young um for young <laughs> minds that is pretty dark
1: as well i i will as well i i grant you no right, I, I need to move us through plot on this thing um Let's and i will say even after this opening expositional song of what's happened you know uh 18, 20 years ago, uh, there's still more exposition because now we need to see what life is like currently in Paris, and that's exposition work. Mm-hmm. So we see uh, a quite a few things in the exposition, none of which are really the inciting incident. We see, you know, the, the city of Paris is getting ready for a festival of fools. We see that there is some... Um, Uh, shenanigans happening with the caravan where, you know, Esmeralda in kind of like the most charming way is is kind of uh, theft adjacent at the very least. She's got a goat uh, named Jolly. Uh, uh, We also see up in Hunchback Tower of uh, Notre Dame, we see uh, Quasi's life. We see that he's built like this little model of the city. We see that he has three kind of friends: uh, the gargoyles, Victor Hugo, and Laverne. That he is desperate to go out to the feast of fools. Uh, still in the inside, still in the exposition. Uh, a guard comes to the city. Uh, a new captain of the guard, Captain Phoebus, comes and reports to Frollo. Frollo goes to the top of the tower for what looks to be a regular lunchtime meeting uh, with Quasimodo, where he's kind of educating Quasi and taking an interest in his rearing in. I'm being very generous uh, in terms of, of describing it, uh, but like he he does do the ABCs with him, but it's a dark ABCs Uh <laughs> Quasimodo decides to ask if he can. Well, like it becomes clear. Frollo figures out that Quasimodo is thinking about going to the Festival of Fools. Explicitly tells him not to. Where would you guys say the inciting incident of this movie occurs? There's a few things jockeying for position here, and I'm not quite sure uh, which ones you'll land on. I know which one I land on. What do you guys like for inciting incident?
2: I have given this some thought and I would actually place it later than the point we've talked about. I feel it's when Esmeralda intervenes with the crowd.
1: Yeah. No, no talk about that as the inciting incident and talk about why yeah. you've picked that one. Cause I think other people might pick earlier points here.
2: Yeah, I, I yeah. agree with you.
1: Your point is my point.
2: Yeah, and I was I was definitely thinking that going through like you know the plot beats. I just feel Esmeralda's intervention and saving Quasimodo from the crowd is the point that everything turns on in this movie, where she makes an enemy out of Frollo. Mm-hmm. She positions herself against Phoebus. Um, Quasimodo feels there's someone who's shown him kindness there is this sense of injustice that is maybe resonating slightly with the crowd as she's making her point. I feel like if she did not intervene, what would happen in this movie is quasi would have this traumatic experience. Frollo would tell him, this is why I told you not to go outside. He would go back to the tower and live out the rest of his days. End of End of and of the movie and nothing would change.
1: And then there's no movie, right? No, mm-hmm. I I'm in agreement with you. I think there are other places people might point to as the inciting incident. And I don't think that they would be wrong. Uh, they mm-hmm. just, I I don't think it's the best answer. Uh, Andy, do you have a different one or are you?
0: Well, I mean, when Quasimodo decides to disobey Frollo and head to the Festival of Fools, right? Um, we don't have mm. a movie unless he does that. I mean, and, and he basically, uh, there's almost... And I'm going to get this wrong. I'm thinking self fulfilling prophecy. It's almost like if you, if if Frollo is sort of a cult leader saying, if you leave this place, bad things will happen. Well, he leaves this place, and bad things start to happen, right? So I, I think um, he's he's leaving uh, something that's you know comfortable, but at the same time, he really wants to make this move. And I think him making that move sets sets everything in motion.
1: No, and I think that's a good answer for inciting incident as well. You know, we often talk about in movies how the second that a character leaves their old world for a new world generally is an inciting incident. Uh, it's how we know... I I will not talk about The Wizard of Oz beyond this. I'm going to cut myself off, but I'm going to say the inciting incident is Dorothy gets to Oz. She's left her old world. She moves to the new world. And I think there's a strong argument to be made for Quasi leaves his old world, which is the Bell Tower, and enters into the city of Paris. Some things I would say are not the inciting incident, although they present themselves as inciting incidents. Uh, that Phoebus, that today is his first day as captain of the guard, uh, kind of feels important. But this is not Phoebus's story, so it's not the inciting incident. Uh, the the idea that uh, Frollo is attracted to Esmeralda feels inciting incident, but again, not Frollo's story. Uh, I I tend towards. I think the better. I think both answers are great. For me, the pivotal point of this is uh, Esmeralda stands up for Quasi because in that one moment, a bunch of things happen. Number one, Quasimodo gets his first taste of real human kindness. Number two. Beavis recognizes Esmeralda as exceptionally spirited and strong-willed. He's gotten a taste of it before, but this is even more so. And number three, she defies Frollo, and Frollo at that point is committed to destroying slash possessing her because mm-hmm. he has been stood up to at the at in one moment, and I think this is masterful. Esmeralda solidifies three important relationships on which this movie is going to ride. And she's kind of she is at the center of all of it. Um, although whose story is this is a right. fair question. That,
0: yeah, that's my question. If if Quasimodo is the protagonist of this movie, then the inciting incident has to be his because this is his journey. But we we yeah, this is a movie that doesn't again, doesn't know who its protagonist is.
2: Well, I, when we talk about the novel, that'll yeah. be a bit more clear, too. <laughs>
0: okay. I, I, I think that's right.
1: Um, so inciting incident. And then we have a lot of rising action. Um, I'm going to I'm going to do rising action relatively quickly here because we've got a lot of other stuff to cover. But this movie hinges. So Esmeralda is. Is forced to take sanctuary at the church. She meet she gets a real opportunity to know Quasimodo, and immediately Quasimodo falls in love with her, but also helps her to escape uh, Notre Dame. The love triangle between Phoebus Quasim. I mean, it's really like a love square if you consider uh, Frollo a part of it. Um, but but. The fact that all three of these men desire Esmeralda with different levels of purity in their intent uh, creates a significant amount of conflict. Uh, Phoebus Phoebus and Quasimodo immediately see themselves as rivals. Uh, They don't necessarily recognize how yucky Frollo is being about all of this but Esmeralda does Mm. eventually Frollo hops upon the plan that he will tell Quasimodo that Esmeralda is in danger follows Quasimodo and Phoebus to the court of miracles where Esmeralda uh, has been granted once again, safety and sanctuary raids it um, captures, captures Esmeralda, tells Esmeralda Quasimodo is the one who betrayed her, which, to her credit, she does not believe. Uh, What would you say the climax of this movie is? Anybody want to jump on this
2: one? I think it has to be Sanctuary. Quasi on the... Yeah. Quasi on the balcony holding Esmeralda.
1: Yes. Uh, When Quasimodo... get we get we get a reversal right this movie Mm -hmm. opened sort of with esmeralda standing up for quasi now quasi stands up for esmeralda rescues her from almost the exact same spot she rescued him if we take a look at the positioning uh rescues her brings her back to notre dame and i think this is the start of the climax but what's interesting is we have a climax and then we have a little decompression space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the bigger climax is, is yet to come. So the decompression space is the movie tells us that Esmeralda died. Uh, she puts water to her lips. Mm-hmm. Uh, she it, it pools up there. Uh, she doesn't appear to be breathing. Uh, Quasimodo grieves. Frollo comes in, talks kind of sympathetically to Quasimodo and then tries to murder Quasi with the old mm-hmm. dagger to the back. I, I think that's where we get our bigger climax is this final confrontation between Quasimodo and Frollo.
0: Quasi definitely avenges the death of his mother in this way, where he, you know, and Frollo ends up falling to his death in molten lead. Um, that, Yeah.
2: You know, what's interesting about that that I just thought of is that I don't think Quasi ever even gets the full understanding of what Frollo did to his mother.
1: No, there's a very Mm -hmm.
2: there's a very brief interaction where Frollo alludes to it. Quasi says what? And then would be a great time for Frollo to actually explain what his cryptic remarks mean, but does not.
0: I mean, it's sort of a it's sort of a Lion King moment, right? With Scar, I killed Mufasa. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It feels uh, it feels the same.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But it's not quite as explicit. Right. But,
0: but what makes this
1: moment for me more the climax uh, than the previous one is the truth or as much truth as we're going to get comes out. Right. Mm. And that's another hallmark feature of the climax. Mm. Also, part of this climax is Esmeralda's not dead. And in fact, She rescues Quasimodo from falling to his doom. Once again, like these two repeatedly owe their lives to one another Uh that they they are, they, we can talk about the profound connection between them and maybe how, how it should be perhaps more profound. Uh, But, but definitely that happens. And then we get a falling action, which is Quasimodo, puts Esmeralda and Phoebus together. He literally puts their hands to each other because he recognizes that they're in love. Uh, They go out and say Frollo is dead, which is in an interesting way, Bryn. Uh, I'm not sure what you make of this. I was thinking like, okay, and now the murder investigation happens, right? Because (laughs) Frollo was in charge of Paris. This was not a revolution this was like you guys were avoiding due process. It was a corrupt yeah. due process. But I guess I guess all that was institutionally wrong with Paris could be traced to this one man. And everybody just shrugs their shoulders and like, yep, glad that guy's dead. I uh, <laughs> yeah. wonder who our new judge is going to be.
2: Uh, I would say Frollo was the following action because. Did you see him? Ah, Uh,
1: (laughs) he lands in in my ongoing theory of each Disney villain landing atop the other. He lands atop Gaston. Uh, Gaston further (laughs) crushes Radigan going all the way down to uh, the evil queen at the bottom.
2: I mean, it was water at first. He could have survived, but then later it's lava. So, yeah,
1: Right. right. Fair enough. Um, we also uh, we also see uh, that Quasi comes out of Notre Dame uh, and everybody guesses when they look at him. But a small child comes over to him and touches him in an affectionate way. And because of that, everybody loves him now. And now Quasimodo gets to be a part of. Of the city of Paris. And I'm sorry, folks, if you hear the edge in my voice about not believing this ending.
2: And you know something? Uh, the child is one of the children who is listening to Clopin's story yes. at the beginning. Uh-huh.
1: Which which is interesting, because when is he telling this story? Right. Um, interesting. An interesting point. Uh, and and then we leave and Paris is a better place End of movie But before we're done talking about The plot I want to talk It's time for one of my favorite features Which Yay. is Larry goes on a rant Um <laughs>
0: Ooh. Andy may join Larry. Andy may join Larry on this rant, depending on what it is. That is that is a rare occurrence because usually all of (laughs) okay, but all of my
2: all of my anger about this has subsided by now, so I won't be ranting necessarily. Just slyly musing. All right, so so here is
0: here is my rant. Join the party at any point, okay? Feel free. (laughs) So when the Little Mermaid
1: came out, I'm starting with the Little Mermaid for a reason. Uh, I was able to watch The Little Mermaid, even though they changed the story, because ultimately The Little Mermaid is a story intended for children. And the sensibilities of children today are different than the sensibilities of children in the day when Hans Christian Andersen told the story of The Little Mermaid. And I was able to be like, okay, they went for the happy ending there. But this was a story for kids, and we want kids to see it. And a tragic ending um, is not appropriate for this new relaunch of the Disney Renaissance. Hunchback of Notre Dame by Victor Hugo is not a story intended for children. No. And when the movie came out, I did not go to see it in the theater because I did not want to see a movie in which at the end of the movie, Quasimodo comes out and the citizens of France love him. Because uh, I want to talk about the difference between how the uh, some differences between the novel and the movie that I think are important. I I could not possibly hit them all, listeners. Um, First of all, I will throw out that the character of Phoebus in the novel is terrible. Uh, He is engaged to somebody else. But when he sees Esmeralda, he lusts after her, just like Frollo does. Unlike Frollo, he is successful in seducing her. And once he's seduced her, gets bored of her and leaves her aside. So it is difficult for me, listener, Uh, to to watch a movie in which their relationship is portrayed as a true love situation. Mm. In particular, at the end of this movie, uh, as uh, here's a big deviation, Esmeralda is killed uh, in that scene in the town square. They burn her as a witch, as I recall. Frollo and and Quasimodo both watch it from atop Notre Dame, Frollo is thrilled that she's dead. And Quasimodo, in a fit of anger, justifiably pushes Frollo from Notre Dame uh, and then recovers Esmeralda's body. And the movie ends with like decades later, they exhume a section of Notre Dame and they find two skeletons, one of which is Esmeralda. And the other one holding her is Quasimodo's Quasimodo's body. And the forensics of the situation suggest that Quasimodo starved himself to death uh, holding her because he could not bring himself to be parted from her. It is is basically he let himself die rather than be parted from her for the rest of the day. And here... Here is my problem, listener. This is not a story in which people are good deep down if you give them a chance. This is not a story in which people triumph over their prejudices, examine their belief system, and realize that they can be better. It Mm. is a story in which outsiders... Uh, are are led to unfair death and destruction because of man's inhumanity to man. And it bothers me in a sensibility kind of way to take a story about inhumanity and how there is a real evil in mankind and uh-huh. turn it into a story which is about most people are good. There's just a couple of bad actors and that is Larry's rant.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to add to that a little bit. There is a, and I, yeah, rubber stamp to everything you just said. Plus, there are these moments in the, this movie where uh, uh, there, you know, you can't right all the wrongs. Someone in here can, right? There's, um, there's a whole lot. If you're going to Disneyfy this story then why do you make the choices that you make like if right. you're going to let's let's just say okay yeah <clears throat> disney's never been really um solid with you know getting source material right that's that's accurate and true um but why can't if you're going to disneyfy it then why can't quasimodo get the girl why does there have to be time out for a sermon in the middle of the movie why doesn't mm-hmm. the archdeacon Tell who knows who Quasimodo is. Tell him who he is. Right? Why? Why isn't there an exploration of Quasimodo as um, a long lost part of Esmeralda's clan? Like, why don't they have the mm-hmm. Luke Leia moment? Right? Um, and why is if if we're constantly talking about what do you have against people who are different? Um, why is being deformed and ugly? Equated to some sort of crime that never, ever, ever gets redeemed. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Andy, you were supposed to rebut me here. No, I'm on board. Oh, (laughs) man. I'll tell you, like, I, and Larry knows this, I tried to watch this movie four times. And every time, it was very hard for me. And every time I would get to this moment, um, I would get to the, the moment where Frollo sings about, you know, burning Esmeralda and yeah, he, he was going to, she was either going to become his or he's going to kill her. And it's so dark. It's so, mm-hmm. so dark. It's more than the jealousy in snow white or Cinderella or sleeping beauty, or even Ursula versus Ariel. Right. It's, it's about choosing forcible rape or death. And that is just too much for me. Like yeah, I'm done. I mean, like I like I'm done. I don't I don't wanna I, I don't wanna spend any more time with this. Can I try rebutting this point? Please, please, do. please. can I just
1: <laughs> can I just add one, one thing to Andy's and then please rebut me because because the listeners want someone to. Um mm-hmm. I will say the closest we've gotten to this part in the past is Gaston. Gaston lusts after Belle, but mm-hmm. it it isn't quite as icky. With Gaston, because Gaston is a narcissist and knows he's a narcissist. Um, and and Frollo is it really trying. He's just so yucky. It's it's. Not even an appropriate like on paper, Gaston and Bell make a certain amount of sense for the for the time period. Frollo is a judge. He's been uh-huh. railing against Esmeralda this whole time. It's right. yucky. Brent. Yep. please put me in my place. Our listeners are begging, <laughs> are begging for it at this point.
2: OK, so my superficial point is while objectively I agree with both of you fully. Um, I really like this movie, therefore it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, my more subsi- uh, substantive point, um, and apologies, I'm, I'm going to lift maybe some of this wholesale from Lindsay Ellis, who did a fantastic video essay on this subject. Um, but just when you think of the purpose of the original Notre Dame de Paris novel, and how a big motivator for it was Victor Hugo wanting people to respect the legacy of Notre Dame, the cathedral, and encourage, you know, uh, restoration and preservation, advocacy for it. I would say that job has already been done. And I think the fact that we just had, three years ago, this incident where Notre Dame burned down in the whole world... Mm-hmm in a kumbaya moment came together and said, no, we, this is important and we need to keep this speaks to that. I feel like this novel secured its legacy. So, but the fact is it's a story that resonates with people all the same. So it keeps being retold and adapted. We're talking about, it's up to what, 15 film adaptations, 16, once mm-hmm. Disney makes sure. it. And maybe the intention of the story needs to change as well. Not that, not that any version of this is going to be kid friendly by any means. Mm-hmm. Just that if you're looking for what is this what does this story need to be about for today's society? Mm-hmm. Not even just children, just today's society in general. I feel like this movie actually lands better now than it did in the nineties when it came out. Just because I feel I feel like people are just readier for it.
0: Yeah. I, I mean will I say I in agree this, I um, will agree with you, Bren. I agree that you know, if we're talking about, you know, the fascist elements of this movie, mm-hmm. right. And who gets to exist and who doesn't. Um, I think, yeah, I think we're ready for it. I
2: mean, in no, in no universe should it have been a cartoon with farting gargoyles, but.
0: That, that's right. it. So, so if this movie is going to be structured like a um, like a German opera. OK, you've got this large scale, elaborate scenery. You've got the constant chorus. We think about that heavenly choir that we hear in Disney so often uh, in the early days and the folk elements and the supernatural stuff. And it feels so big. Then you kind of have these moments where, oh, you know, we here we're going to burn down this peasant's house. Right. Right. And then to pull the tr- you know, to pull the plug on it, we're going to have this gargoyle sing a funny little song. Like there's nothing funny about this. Like it, know, it's, I, it feels to me like we're we're making light of stuff that's so dark. And yes, you have to sort of pull the release valve in a in a script. And,
2: and, and to that point, um, and I was actually talking to Larry about this while I was watching the movie. There is a line in. The song, A Guy Like You, which is the Gargoyles number, which happens right after Paris is being burned down by this mad fascist dictator. Right. Where Hugo says, Paris, the city of lovers is glowing this evening. True, that's because it's on fire. And it's played as a joke. Yes. And it totally. It totally under, undermines the dramatic tension of this story. Right. For a, for a cheap punchline.
1: I, I have... Two points I wanna I wanna make about this because some of this we're gonna come back to in terms of craft. Uh, I wanna say in this movie's defense, it is gorgeous, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely beautiful. Uh, I I love how Notre Dame looks. I love how Quasimodo swings around it and the camera works. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the music is amazing. Music. I yes. I I love the songs. I, I do agree with with Andy's point that and, and I think Brian agrees with the two that a guy like you uh, is off tonally. I uh, understand why it's there for me. This is an uh, excellent execution of a concept of a, of a movie. I don't I don't want um, and, and what I mean by that <laughs> is I don't want a happy version of Hunchback of Notre Dame. I just don't want that product. If you Mm -hmm. decide that that's the product that you want, I think a lot of the choices that they made fall out of that decision I don't like, but are excellent ways of making that happen. I do have one quibble we'll get to with, uh, it's not even a quibble with Quasimodo and Esmeralda. Um, So that's point one that there's, I I don't want to diminish the craft that went into making this movie. I I disagree with this movie more philosophically Mm -hmm. than I do In terms of execution.
2: It is a beautiful mistake. That is how I feel about it.
1: Yes, that's well put. Uh, The the second point I want to make is I feel like Disney fell into a trap here. And the trap is when Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, all the way through Lion King came out. I think it was a surprise how many adults without children went to see those movies? How many mm-hmm. teens without children went to see those movies? And I think Disney was like, we have a bigger audience. These these successes were bigger than we ever thought they would be. We should start gearing our movies towards taking care of that older audience. And I think in this movie... They go too far in that direction without realizing the reason that Larry and Andy like to go to cartoons is because we want to be happy. Um, and and there is some work to split the difference. I think that's why the gargoyles are in this movie. Uh, they, mm-hmm. they are not listener in the novel. There are no singing, dancing gargoyles in the novel. Right. It's been a while for me, Bryn. He, he, does, uh, but, he does.
2: He does talk to them. Yes, so he does talk to they, them. But they didn't, they didn't conjure it from nothing, but close enough.
1: Right. But but, you know, they're not hopping around.
0: But you're right, Larry. There's this there's this fable that I'm missing. I go to the lion. I went to the Lion King and it moved me so deeply because it touched on deeper issues. Right. Like the Lion King is really big, but it's a fable and it can be Mm -hmm. enjoyed on a couple of different levels. I'm not sure that this movie hits that mark. I don't right. think you can enjoy it on a couple of different levels because it is I mean it's telling you what these big themes are instead of kind of that subtext of a theme that we have in The Lion mm-hmm. King it's telling me what the themes are in the very first song.
2: Nice. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah. like a surpri- it's not like a surprisingly deep kids movie. Yeah. It's a but- It's an adult movie that has kitty elements
0: thrown in to Right, which I think cheap, which I think cheapen it. Right, I think if you're going to go that way, then go go full throttle, go Prince of Egypt on this, or go whatever, but don't Mm -hmm. don't try to cutesy it up for me.
2: And you know Uh, they did, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but they did a direct-to-video sequel that basically goes full (laughs) throttle in making it a kids' film. Quasimodo gets a girlfriend and.
1: Yeah, we're not going to talk about that one today. But but uh, Andy hasn't oh, seen it, and well, there are things well, I want yeah. I want to
0: surprise her
2: with. Oh really? That my, one. Oh, my pitch meeting revolves around it. Oh, so. well, go ahead.
0: You can you can pitch it. It it will be fine. It will totally be fine.
2: Well, we're going to erase well, we'll, it from we'll, existence. That's the pitch.
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's Vera. talk about some let's talk about some characters. Um, let's talk about Quasimodo. What do you guys think? Um. Well, I think I've made, I, I think I've made mine clear. I mean, I I think Quasimodo should get the girl. End of story. He should. To- if we're doing a
1: Disney version of it, the- okay. I'm I'm wearing up for a rant again. So Go for so, it. <laughs> why does Phoebus Phoebus and Esmeralda end up together in this movie? And the answer appears to be, good looking people deserve to be together, and right. Quasimodo. Quasimodo, even though you love Esmeralda too, that that's is not going to it, happen. Right. It's wanting too much, <laughs> yep. Quasimodo. Yeah, yep. settle. Stay for, in your lane,
0: Quasimodo. Stay in your settle lane. Settle
1: for being
2: tolerated.
0: You've got friends Kay. now. Calm down. Yep. Can I can I advocate for this? Please do.
2: Okay, go for it. I I feel like quasi getting the girl is not necessary, and I I am fully on one hand, I'm in agreement. I'm, I'm just maybe playing devil's advocate a little, um, just in the sense that, yes, there are some unfortunate implications of having Esmeralda end up with the good looking protagonist rather than the uh, not as good looking one. Um, I just feel so much of Quasimodo's journey in this movie is finding acceptance with the broader public just to even walk outside without being mocked and jeered for his, you know, appearance, I feel like him. And again, philosophically, no, this should not have a happy ending by any means, but I do feel like Quasimodo being welcomed by the crowd at the end of the film is a happier ending for him than ending up with Esmeralda could be.
0: So then why, then why aren't we staying on that? Then why aren't we spending more time with it? Because it seems like it gets super, that's kind of a, Oh, there, we're even, even the shot, I say shot, even the scene where we see Esmeralda and and Phoebus like looking down on Quasimodo as he marches into the like he's we're not with him as a point of view. Like we're not with him enjoying this new this new life. Oh, well, we go and back so, to him.
1: Yeah. Uh, so but, here's, here's a couple of things I want to throw interject into this, because I think it's important. I defy you. Uh, 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 that's this is strong, this can be, there's gonna be pushback against it, <laughs> but I, def, I defy you, viewer, to make the case that in this movie what you're hoping to see is Phoebus and Esmeralda get together. Phoebus is a... Look... I'm attracted to Esmeralda. I will straight up say that she is way towards the top of my Disney princess pick list. I I know she's not a princess, but I I don't really care about she that. She is the
2: Jessica Rabbit for a generation.
1: Oh, she's 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 amazing, and I I but but I often feel that Phoebus is interested in her because she looks amazing. Mm -hmm. Whereas Quasimodo is interested in her because she's kind. Yep. And that if we're going to tell a story and and if we're telling the story to to say, like, we shouldn't judge people based on what they look like, Mm -hmm. which I disagree with, but is the premise of this version of the story. The idea that Esmeralda. What's important is. That she'd be in an attractive pairing rather than be with her soulmate bothers me. I feel that Esmeralda and Quasimodo are soulmates. They repeatedly stand up for each other. They repeatedly Mm -hmm. sacrifice for each other. Even in the original novel, Quasimodo and Esmeralda were switched at birth. There is this link between them. They were born at the same time. their lives have just re- destiny has repeatedly thrown them together. That if we're gonna do a story that where anybody can look deep and find love, then let's just go for it, particularly if you are a member of the audience who identifies with Quasimodo. Mm-hmm. If you look at Quasimodo and for the first time you're seeing representation of yourself in a movie. To see at the end of the movie that you have to... There's a moment where Quasimodo's crying around the corner watching Esmeralda and Phoebus make out. And at the end of the movie to see that Quasimodo is accepted by society but does not have a loving, committed partner. It is, I think, a slap in the face. To say, like, that is is just... You
2: don't get that. Agreed. Yeah. And I feel like this is the challenge with this movie trying to stay within the contours of the novel's storyline while tacking on a happy ending at the very mm-hmm. end, just to make it more palatable. Mm-hmm. Because it, it didn't structurally, it doesn't change much from what happens in the novel. It's just
1: there are dozens of women who would line up around the corner to be with Phoebus. Yeah, he will be ha- he will find happiness elsewhere. I have no doubt he has found it in the past, Um, but but it does feel in the context of this movie. And I know about the sequel in the context of the movie. (laughs) This is Quasimodo's one chance. Yeah, she is the one person who looks at him and sees a man. Yeah. And Mm. and when is that going to come for him again? I'm a bummer today, guys.
0: I'm so No, it's okay. It's totally okay. You can totally be a bummer. Let's. I uh, we've talked. We've talked about Quasimodo. We've talked about Esmeralda. Let's talk about Frollo, Claude Frollo a little bit. Um, we've talked about him a little. Um, I I think there's this thing that I, I keep bumping my head on. Why, if he keeps Quasimodo around, he keeps. He seems to keep. According to this movie, he keeps Quasimodo around. So he won't go to hell for killing Quasimodo's mother, but yes. there's a big disconnect for me because he continues to spend daily time with him, and is is that some sort of a penance? Is yes. his time with Quasimodo yeah. some kind of a penance? Okay. So,
1: I so as I see the movie, when the archdeacon confronts Frollo. And says you can lie to your friends and your neighbor. You can say that you haven't a qualm, but you'll never, like the people above, the the views of those above, know what you did in this spot. For that, uh, the 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 music specifically tells us that for the first time in his life, Frollo becomes afraid that he's going to hell, and so he needs to do good by Quasimodo. It's it's pretty much what the archdeacon says. Because he says, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of going to hell? And the Archdeacon says, raise him as your son. I see. That's how you do it. If you do that, you don't go to hell. You go to heaven. Okay. And I, what I think is, I think Frollo is at his most interest, interesting when he is genuinely talking to Quasimodo and raising him. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that he loves Quasimodo. No, but I think he is doing what he thinks is a good job by Quasimodo.
2: Can I point out one small thing that always, for whatever reason, of my course. brain just kind of latched onto? to? And it's, it's so it's so minor, but I just think it's it's a neat little cracking the window open into Frollo's mind. It's when Quasimodo has Phoebus hidden under the table and Frollo comes with him to dinner. Trying to get something out of Quasi, trying to get information out of him. And there's this part where he picks up the Esmeralda doll that Quasi just made and says, Is this one new? It's awfully good. And I think it's it's not commented on, it's so minor. I just think it's so interesting that like even in that passing reference, he takes an interest in Quasi's hobbies and mm-hmm. acknowledges, like, oh yes, this is another one of your dolls that you made. And this one is really good. I mean, it obviously leads into him figuring out Quasimodo helped Esmeralda, but it, it just, I don't, I don't know. It, it just, it feels like a comment a parent would make. And Yeah,
1: well, it, it, I, I think you're right. And I think, for me, the most interesting thing about the Quasimodo-Frollo relationship is I think Quasimodo is so desperate for affection from Frollo Mm-hmm. I think Quasimodo does think of Frollo as a father, even though he calls him master. Mm-hmm. I I think uh, in that final scene where Esmeralda is, is quote unquote dead, although she's not. And Frollo says words to comfort Quasimodo. I think Quasimodo believes Frollo is, is trying to do right by him up mm-hmm. until he sees the dagger. Uh, he realizes that this person who he trusted to, to love him doesn't mm-hmm. does not because he, he repeatedly stands up for Frollo through this movie. when yeah. when Phoebus and Esmeralda tell him that Frollo's intentions are corrupt, Quasimodo takes the perspective that from Frollo's point of view, Frollo is doing good. We know that's not true. Mm-hmm. But Quasimodo, the Quasimodo of this movie believes the best in everyone, including Frollo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And
2: Which I is think- my
1: problem with Quasimodo. Uh, which is that he's perfect. Quasimodo has a perfect soul. He has actually nothing to learn other than that maybe other people are better than he was taught, but he himself doesn't really need to change his behavior.
0: Yeah, well, a good dis- person. disagree, disagree. He needs to get away from Frollo and he needs to see the truth about who the captivity he's in. Yeah,
1: So well, and- that's a change in. I'm sorry, Brent. Uh, give me two seconds. That's a yes. change in circumstances for him. That's an eye opening to the truth. But as a person, who he is, is just fine.
0: Well, or he thinks, or if he, he thinks that <laughs> he can have a girl and he can't, that could Ooh, be his arc, yes. too. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that. I, 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 I told you I have problems with this thing. I, yeah, got I do, problems.
2: <laughs> I, I, think to, I think to Larry's point, and uh, this is kind of my baggage coming in with, like, I've listened to, like, the DVD commentary and stuff like that, so... I've heard the director's own thoughts on these issues and one of the things with Quasimodo is that he is not a good person in the book. He's no mm-hmm. kind of a monster and yep. this maybe will be something we can talk about with protagonist problems, but I feel like there was a very conscious effort to sort of whitewash Quasimodo's character as much as possible to avoid mm-hmm. offending people in portraying a deformed disabled man as a jerk. You know, I guess my
1: real issue with this movie, Bryn, now that you say that, is that they already made the movie they want to make. It's called Beauty and the Beast. Exactly. They they made
0: a story of someone
1: whose appearance uh, was scary, but you learn to look beneath it and he's actually a pretty great guy. They did it already. So to to repurpose Quasimodo into doing that again. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't
0: know. Well, um, unless yeah. unless you're telling it from the Beast's perspective, right? I mean, if yeah. the perspective is going to change, then that's a different.
2: Yeah. French story, same directors. Yep. Frollo mm-hmm. was in Beauty and the Beast as well, the voice actor. So. Yep. It's a through line.
0: What about Phoebus? Captain Phoebus. What do we think about him? Hate him.
2: I've I've got no problem with Phoebus on this movie. Oh, in general. Here's what
1: I hate about Phoebus is Phoebus does not have to do any of the work in his, in his, he charms Esmeralda so effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Um, He, he comes, he comes in. I mean, his name is Phoebus. Like he's, he's the God Apollo in human form. That's what we're supposed to see when we look at him. Um, I don't like as someone who's a quasi booster and wants quasi to end up with Esmeralda. uh, If you're going to have her end up with Phoebus, I need Phoebus to do more or to demonstrate an understanding of Esmeralda that Quasimodo does not have to see her to something that says this guy deserves her just as much as Quasimodo does. Not that women should be considered prizes and not that women shouldn't have agency over their choices. But if you want me to root for Phoebus over Quasimodo, give me a reason other than he's handsome.
2: Mm -hmm. If you wanted me to make a list of reasons I advocate for the stage adaptation of this movie. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, that's on there, along with dozens of others. But
1: But they're not here.
2: (laughs) Right, right. Oh. They're not in this version. Yeah. OK,
0: what about the gargoyles? What do we think?
2: Oh, what uh, a loaded question.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I, so I'll, I'll throw something out. I, I when I first saw this because they go to stone when other people are around. I think that they are Quasimodo's internal dialogue.
1: This is the question. Are they even really characters in this movie? Or are they projections?
2: Brynn and I oh. have talked about this as oh, well. Yeah, Larry fretted me for this.
1: So Um, so we need to answer. So we need to go around the room here and say, do we think that Victor Hugo and Laverne are real or do we think that they are his imaginary friends? What do we
0: think, Andy? Imaginary friends. Okay, what's what's the case for imaginary friends? I just think that there's kind of this push pull between them and if quasimodo were sorting things out in his own mind it would be the dialogue would sound similar like if he were talking out loud he would sound maybe not as over the top and maybe not as animated but he's certainly a guy who plays and he creates characters and acts acts with them and you know has his little play <laughs> play set of paris and so why not why not have some characters that that do that work. All right, Bryn, where are you land on this?
2: So my biggest problem with this movie, even aside from the happy ending, you know, the kind of the disification of everything, I really want to agree with Andy's argument. I think they have to be real. I think there is a point, and it, it happens mainly, I think, during the battle, mm-hmm. where they start doing stuff that Quasimodo could not possibly be doing himself. hmm and they start interacting with even the other characters in ways that Quasi could not be doing. Um, I'm going to mention Wizard of Oz now because there's a Wizard of Oz reference (laughs) in this movie. There is. Laverne summons crows to attack the soldiers. Mm -hmm. Quasimodo cannot do that. And this is a story that, even in the Disney version, is so grounded in realism, it just feels so at odds with everything. And I feel like they could have gotten away with this if they really had Mm -hmm stuck to their guns and said no they are firmly imaginary and even again to refer to the commentary the directors they really did play it up as like oh are they real are they imaginary who knows it's up to the viewer to decide and then it's like okay but then you have them build a cannon mm-hmm. i don't buy it <laughs> so no i i want them to be fair imaginary, enough but they have to be real i think fair enough uh,
1: Oh, that's fantastic! Um, so I, pro- I prom—I prepared both because if you guys agreed, I was going to take the other side just to be contrary because I'm like that. Um, I think the movie is better if they are imaginary, and we have a moment where we realize that they are imaginary, mm-hmm. um, like that. That, but the by the logic of the story, they are real. Because of the things that Bryn said. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as further proof uh, that they are real, in the future, Victor, Hugo, and Laverne will be frequent guests at Mickey Mouse's House of Mouse. Uh, They go (laughs) clubbing. (laughs) They interact with the other Disney characters. So, uh, I mean, that's all canon. And and
2: Jolly can see them, too.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's true. Which, by the way,
2: Jolly is... Significantly better comic relief than any of the three Gargoyles put together.
0: Agree.
1: And I actually want to make a case for. Uh,
0: I am a l- huge Jason Alexander fan, and I completely agree. Uh, the line that I, I hate uh, from this
1: movie is which was in all of the trailers was pour the wine and cut the cheese. Armpit noise, armpit noise, armpit noise. Um, but <laughs> I, I want to make a couple of points about the Gargoyles. I'll try to do it quickly. Um, generally speaking, it feels weird that they're a trio and not a duo. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's just a numerical thing. Victor and Hugo feel like the odd couple to me. Right. And, and, and Laverne is like the third. I don't, I I just, I, I don't, in my head, I don't understand how we got to three gargoyles.
2: See, I actually, I, I would advocate for it being three and maybe this doesn't, Necessarily come out in the movie, but I always saw it as uh, Victor and Hugo representing uh, Quasimodo's cautious side versus his more impulsive side. Uh, in and then the I feel ego like, and
1: super ego, and then I feel bit. like
2: I feel like Laverne splits the difference and kind of speaks to his heart. And I feel like in this movie she's portrayed as kind of the wisest of the three.
1: Yeah, um, but I yeah uh, they are I mean, clearly there, but but they're clearly to there to that. be comic relief. You know who I would like to be in this movie? Who isn't? In the novel, uh, there is another person in love with Esmeralda, Pierre. Uh, Pierre stumble, uh, stumbles across the Court of Miracles. Uh, they're going to kill him. He's this poet. He's not a very, you know, um, and uh-huh. basically they're like, you're not one of us, so we're going to kill you. And Esmeralda, out of pity, fall, uh, agrees to marry Pierre so that right. her, her tribe won't kill him. Uh mm-hmm. but the funniest bit about this is he falls in love with her but at the end of the movie when end of the book when Esmeralda is burning he realizes that really like he kind of loves the jolly more and he's like I got to get this goat out of here and he rescues the goat instead of Esmeralda and I think <laughs> I think you can get some comedy out of that here that there's this one guy in the movie who the stakes of the movie are is I really, I really just love this goat. This goat is adorable. And like, Mm -hmm. like I, I, it's constantly getting the goat to safety. Like he has moments to do great heroism. And he's like, nope, I'm saving my pet.
2: That's funny that you say that because I've always thought of Pierre because he's sort of a narrative character in the novel. And I always mm-hmm. thought of him as being rolled into Clopin in the movie. But now Agreed. that you mention it, um, clearly he was also rolled into Hugo as well because he loves the yes. going. Wow. Yeah. It's brilliant. Really?
0: <laughs> ah, so much. They should have talked to us before they made this. Okay. So um, what kind of craft notes do we have? I came up with several. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you start <laughs> us off? I wondered, well, I mean, I, I would ease up on the exposition when it comes to the theme on this. And I've mentioned that before. I think it's didactic. I think it's pedantic. I think the thing that bothers me most about this movie is that explicitness of theme. Mm -hmm. Just straight up. I mean, because again, it doesn't pay off. Um, I want, if Quasimodo is, is treated as a monster and comes out as a man, then that should be the story, but it's not the story. And so I don't know. It doesn't I, feel like the story to me. I wanna anyway. go I
1: wanna go hand in hand with this because I think my real issue is they lie with theme. And when I mean lie mm-hmm. with it, um yes, Quasimodo leaves uh, Notre Dame and the people of France accept him. But we have to know, right, that for the rest of his life he is going to meet more people who are gonna treat him terribly based on his appearance. Mm-hmm. It's it's not over. It's not like a switch got flipped, and for the rest of his life he's going to be treated like, like a man. This is this is a battle that gets one person by person, mm-hmm. uh, with people wrestling with their own darkness. And for me, what this movie kind of says is through a moment of heroism, you can you have the power to change how everybody will treat you. When in fact, the real lesson for Quasimodo should be. No matter what anybody else says about me, I'm a man, not a monster. I can't control how other people are going to see me, but I can control how I respond to it. And I'm going to respond to it like a man and not like a monster.
0: Can I just say and maybe. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry.
2: sorry. Uh, Can I just say at the end of the movie, uh, there's a reprise of Bells in Notre Dame where the line Mm -hmm. who is the monster and who is the man is changed to what makes a monster and what makes a man. And I feel mm-hmm, like yeah. that would have been a better guiding directive. And coincidentally, the coincidentally yes. in the musical, um, it is in the opening. They change it in the opening as well. And it is just mm-hmm. the same in both versions. So that's better.
0: Yeah.
2: But, I think that's the yeah. right choice. I think that is better. Yep.
0: What about protagonist problems? Um, just when I am beginning to care about Quasimodo, we start a whole new story. <laughs> and that <laughs> drives me nuts. Yeah. Like, I don't care about Esmeralda, and I really don't care about Phoebus. But I I am invested in Quasimodo's story, and I want to know what happens with him.
2: So kind of pivoting to my point about, um, I feel like this movie was trying really hard to stay within the contours of the novel, is that Mm -hmm. Esmeralda is much more of the protagonist in the novel. I feel everything revolves around her. And Quasimodo is kind of a side character who when they translated it in english decided to make the focal point of the story um and i just feel like that's kind of a consequence of like not trying to branch out too far from what the novel storyline was with this adaptation gotcha where mm-hmm. they're clearly trying to position quasimodo as the protag- protagonist i would still mm-hmm. call him the protagonist of this movie but esmeralda still has to be kind of the most important character in the story
1: You know, in a world in which they hadn't made Beauty and the Beast, I think she would be. We would see Mm -hmm. all of this through her eyes and we would get a better look. I I said Quasimodo is perfect. Uh, He's really perfect compared to his novel version. His novel version is disillusioned with mankind and, and does think that people are inherently evil. And he makes an exception for Esmeralda. He says, maybe you're the one who's good on the inside. And she kind of wants to convince him that there's a, she's a believer in human goodness and he's not, um, you know, it's, it's, it would be more complicated that way, but he was never designed to be the protagonist. He was designed, designed to be the, the reveal that there's mm-hmm. a thing up in, and I say thing, I don't mean thing, but like that people talk about, there's a thing up in the tower. And yeah, we he's, learn. he's like,
2: an, he's like an urban legend.
1: Right, right. That people think there's a monster up there, and we go into it expecting there to be a monster, and she sees him and realizes this isn't a monster; it's a man. But again, that's Beauty and the Beast, and what are you gonna do?
0: Yeah, I mean, and in that way, I don't. And like clearly, they borrow from the 1939 version Mm -hmm. of, like I said, the Charles Lawton Marie O'Hara, which I think is a far superior uh, movie than this one. Um, Mm -hmm. for for that reason, for that very reason. Um, what about adult themes and children's audiences? What do you guys think? Uh, I, I feel this movie gets too
1: adult. And there's, there's, there's a couple of places. Um, one place is when Frollo sniffs Esmeralda's hair. Uh, <laughs> that is too much for me as a child to deal with. Uh, mm-hmm. In an adult movie... Fine with it. It's still yucky. Uh, but it was so yucky in this animated movie.
2: Yeah. he is He's gross in yeah. that moment. You know, I was talking about this with my wife, because we watch it together when I watch it in anticipation of this. And she pointed out that scene as like, because she was maybe only like six or seven when this came out. And she was like, this is the first time I got a sense of... Frollo wants Esmeralda, but he does not love her. Mm-hmm. I just think that's interesting. And yeah, it, it I didn't really understand what it was either. But yeah, it's, it's like you could put your finger on it and know that something's wrong with that.
1: And again, I'm I'm just paralleling it with Gaston. Gaston mm-hmm. is constantly looking at himself, not at Belle. And yeah. it makes mm-hmm. his it makes Gaston's yuckiness less I I mean. Gaston's a monster, and we'll talk about that when we do Beauty and the Beast. I'm I'm not gonna be a Gaston, you know, supporter here. But if if I had to spend time with Gaston or Frollo, I'd pick Gaston. Oh yeah, of course. Um, You know, there's also a moment.
0: (laughs) There's also a moment where like Phoebus is injured, and he and Esmeralda are making out, and Quasimodo is watching. That is like it goes on and on and on, and I'm like, can this stop? I know, I I know, <laughs> I I'm like, it, it's I, unco- it's very uncomfortable. I,
1: I believe they consummate their relationship in in that scene. Uh, oh sure, uh, and I, it's. Do I mean, I mean, you the,
2: disagree, Bryn? I mean, the song is long enough. Sure, yeah.
1: But- <laughs> Um, I, 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 I think there is a lot of sexuality in this movie. And when I say a lot, I don't mean a lot, a lot. I just mean a lot for your younger viewers who, who are, uh, who are, when even there's like a kiss in Peter Pan, like my son covered his eyes because he didn't want to see Tiger Lily and Peter Pan kiss for half a second. Mm. Um, there is a lot of it here.
0: Right, I mean, I and and it doesn't the sexuality doesn't bother me as much as like the, the, the way in which Quasimodo is treated in that moment, and it it just bothers me. I mean, we're also, I mean, I'm more concerned about the lust and the genocide and the murder, and the, you know that just seems like a, a the dead yeah. mother in the arms of the archdeacon, yeah, it, like I, you know, you a know, baby being thrown down a well. I mean, this is a lot.
2: You know, Andy, I feel. <laughs> You brought up Prince of Egypt, and I mm-hmm. feel like that's what this movie should have tried to be if it was going to be an animated film. Mm-hmm. Um, I just feel Disney as a brand probably did not have the leeway that DreamWorks would have had, but maybe they could have mm-hmm. released it under Touchstone. Or uh, right around the time this movie was made, uh, they were planning on making Aida into an animated film. Got a bit of, a, a ways into its development, realized <laughs> this is too dark. <laughs> Let's make it a stage musical instead. It's like, why listener?
0: You just listener. You just didn't see Larry and I, like our eyes just went above our glasses. Like our eyebrows. Like I I (laughs) I kind of want to unpack that now, but we, we can't,
2: we're going long as it is. (laughs) Like, Um, (laughs) it's just like, why did you not have that epiphany about hunchback? It was, and they made it a stage musical and it was a much better story for it.
1: Sure. I I want to throw out here the other thing that I think is is a little troubling theme-wise is all of the hell imagery. Yeah. Oh my god. Is not terribly problematic <laughs> for me because I don't believe in this version of hell. I don't believe in the the fiery pit. I don't I the, the this imagery is not my is not my imagery is not my religious iconography uh but I have to imagine if you're a kid being raised with stories of hell and hellfire Mm -hmm. and eternal damnation Mm -hmm. that it's, it is terrifying to see these things Mm -hmm. in a Disney movie. I, I mean the closest I think we've come to it, uh, is probably in the lion King. It's like the, the hyenas sort of look devilish at several places, but it's not explicit here. Like the gargoyle comes to life and it's a demon. His eyes go wide. The 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 floor of uh, Paris is turned into the lava pits of hell. Mm-hmm. It's a lot for a little kid. Did you
2: know, this movie, a, this movie got a G rating.
0: I am it, shocked. Yeah, baffling.
2: It was going to be PG. The only thing they had to change was when Esmeralda is dancing in the fire in the Hellfire song. Uh, they had to draw clothes on her. That was the only note from MPAA.
0: Oh my goodness. I mean, there is a moment that I think is really interesting too, where the people around Esmeralda are sort of praying and sort of, it's, uh, it's almost like a prosperity gospel, very Protestant actually, Mm -hmm. where um, uh, for they're praying for stuff and, and riches and whatever. And Esmeralda is praying for, you know, to help my people. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's nice. I mean, that's nice, but gosh, at what, what price also, I think this is the most explicitly religious Disney movie. Oh, Oh, for sure. I mean, it's like, and I, one of the things that bothers me about, about Christian filmmaking in general is the let the let's take time out for the sermon moment. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) I feel like we get that with the archdeacon um, who doesn't really have a business doing that because he, Again, he knows who Quasimodo is. He doesn't tell him anything. He doesn't can set I, anyone free. And he's perfectly happy. Can with I, all this Can process. I point
2: something out that might make that make more sense? The archdeacon sure. is not in the book because in the book, Frollo is the archdeacon.
1: <sighs> That's correct.
0: They, he's, uh, not, they, he's not a judge in the in they, the it in would the book. make so much more sense if he had been the archdeacon and, and there had actually been a king. Right. And
2: guess what? The musical changes that, too. Right. Rafarolo right. is the okay. archdeacon in the musical. So
0: Would make yeah, would make mm. far more makes sense. Makes it makes okay. it a much
2: more coherent story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, pitch time. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> my, I'm, I'm just gonna go with my pitch because I I really couldn't think of anything, but I thought Disney's the Stranger by Albert Camus. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to go French and we're going to do then, whatever, let's just adult then, themes. The stranger. Then at the, the end, it.
1: the stranger is acquitted of by at the trial and is That's beloved correct. by the people of France and they go viva Le stranger.
0: That's right. Yes. Oh, correct. Wonderful. That's my pitch. Great. <laughs> I was thinking crime and punishment, but I think somebody else had already mentioned that online. So, okay. <laughs> Um, uh, Bryn, do you have one, or did we already hear well, yours?
2: Yeah, I was, I was racking my brain about this. I don't really have anything. I will say they made a sequel, and one of their tried and true tropes for the sequels is bringing back the villain's sibling as the new villain to replace the old villain. Frollo has a brother in the novel, and they chose not to do this. Mm-hmm. Oh. I feel very big missed opportunity. I would just not want to see a Hunchback three because that has to imply a Hunchback two existed.
1: <laughs> and it does. And it does. And we'll do it. And it will be. Oh will, my God.
2: I, is I can't that, wait. Is that why you pushed out the year to 2002? Just so he could. <laughs> Maybe.
1: Uh, no, we're only up to 2001 yet. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll get to 2002 yeah. eventually. Uh, all right. So uh, pitch time for me. Yes. i uh, I'm going to just pitch two scenes rather than uh, two, two uh, actual movies. Uh, imagine, since Belle is in, walking around Town Square, imagine that Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback of Notre Dame are happening simultaneously, uh, that the Hunchback has to take sanctuary at Beast's castle, and, and Quasimodo uh-huh. says, says, I'm a monster, and the Beast goes, you're a monster uh, that's one scene um, love it and my other scene is uh, Goliath on his world tour from Gargoyle's the cartoon show comes to France uh, and he meets the long-lost French clan of Gargoyles Victor Hugo and Laverne <laughs> much more and comical. adopts them adopts them as rookery brothers and sisters. Uh, and sister. Uh, love those are, it. Those are my, those right. are my scene pitches. I, I want them as sketches in some sort of Disney's uh, sort of robot chicken sketch variety mm. hour. I don't I don't <laughs> want full movies. In fact, that's my pitch is put, the Disney sketch sketch put, comedy. Put them, parody hour. This,
2: put them in this. Movie. I love it. Just slap them in somewhere. Yeah. Yes. I not to keep banging the stage musical. It is great. I recommend everyone listen to it. Um, I think it gave me everything I wanted from this version of the story. And I do hope that the uh, live action film, if it does materialize, uh, takes as much from that as it possibly can.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, Bren, thank you so much for coming and playing along with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I really it was a I we a definitely
1: needed your help on this one.
0: So absolutely. we appreciate thank it happy, so happy, much. Happy to
2: lend my expertise, if you can call it that.
0: <laughs> I think we can. Yes. Um, Larry,
1: what are we doing next week? I'm excited. I have not seen this movie, or if I did, I was really little. But do you remember how surprised I was at how much I loved The Love Bug? I was Uh like, it was like the biggest (laughs) surprise that I loved that movie. We're doing the sequel to it, Herbie Rides Again. Oh, Uh, I think you're gonna be, I think you're gonna be happy. I'm, I think you're gonna be happy. I'm going into this as a positive movie goer. I believe that Herbie Lightning can strike twice. Love the Love Bug. We'll love this. (laughs) That's my, that's my thought.
0: Awesome. Well, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? And if you write us a review, we'd be so pleased. You can also check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. You can tweet us at, at Andy Redwine or at Larry Six, or you can drop us a line in our mailbag at Once Upon a Disney Podcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon.
1: See you real soon.